This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, January 13th, 2022. 2020, 2022. <laughs> I'm John O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com. We got a lot to get through today and not much time to do it. I We're going to do a couple of things because we're starting to get um, 2021 results from the publishing industry. Mm-hmm. I've got the list of the best-selling books of the year, but I'm going to hold that in abeyance till next week. So we're just going to do the top tier today. Like publishing is okay. doing, doing some checkouts, some other stuff. And I've got some hot takes to throw at you, okay? And, but <laughs> so that's a preview of next week. <laughs> and I, um, will, uh, I will abstain from looking at any yes. headlines or clicking on anything about the top-selling books of the year so that I can come in cold there and you give you the setup that you prefer where I just this, guess wildly at things. <laughs> it's, uh, it will be humiliating, I think. And this is the reason why. And Wonderful. I spent some time on TikTok over break, especially book-related. Oh. <laughs> it is interesting. I've okay. got some thoughts. Danik and I talked about it before. I got some <laughs> details from her. I really I really swam around in the pool. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a place I want to hang out, but I think it's worth talking about, especially when you start to see some of the names that appear there and uh, some, some meta-trends within, or sub-trends within the trends. So all that's to be said. Next week, we're going to get into specific titles. This week, we're going to do Reading Habits, Printing, library stuff, and then Station Eleven. Uh, mm-hmm. We are now episode nine came out today. I have not watched it yet. There's one more episode to go. I'm oh, no, sorry. The episode oh no, 10 episode came ten out came out today. It's That's done. It. It's out. Uh, interestingly, Station Eleven has ten episodes, but it's done. I have not seen it yet. I assume you haven't. Did you get up early this morning to no, watch episode ten? No, okay. the fact that I am at work this afternoon doing a, a run of conference calls and talking to you instead of watching Station Eleven and then thinking about Station Eleven and then crying about Station Eleven and then talking about Station Eleven is a real testament. It's, it's a to lot. Willpower. It's a lot. But we're going to talk about the first nine episodes. We're going to do spoiler free now, so we're going to give kind of why we are levitating about Station Eleven, mm-hmm. I think, is a way to say what we're going to do. And then once we're done with the whole series, maybe we'll get into specifics and we can talk a little bit about that good next plan. week as well. Uh, also, before we get going, bookriot.com slash winner draft. If you would like to get our winner drafts preview episode, Rebecca and I, again, are once again squaring off in the lowest stakes of all literary, <laughs> literary gladiatorial combat. The weirdly high stakes, the highest lowest stakes, I guess. Like yes. Delaware is the highest lowest point. These are the lowest highest stakes because it's it's personal, right? Uh, uh, so that, that's that's fun, and we had a good time. The votes are coming in. It's very close at the moment. Oh, I, I like say. that. I don't know if you've looked at that. I One have not. Flaw, what, we had a little bit of trouble getting Gumroad to do what we want. Uh, it should be okay now. But if you do run into trouble, email us podcast at bookride.com. I will do my best to straighten the things out and give you access to what we can give you access to manually as these things go. One one flaw, I should have put in a notes field for voting because we got a lot of good intel in people mm. having to email to vote and then, you know, telling us other things about it. Right now we're just getting the votes. We're not getting any of the secondary information. Again, live and learn. We're figuring out how mm-hmm. to do this stuff, but it is figuring very interesting to see. Also, the most recent episode 
episode of Adaptation Nation, Adaptation Nation, whatever podcast player you like, uh, is still me and Rebecca talking about <laughs> the English patient. There's going to be a new Adaptation Nation coming out in a few days. Um, I, some people, I've, I've gone back and forth about, does it get people excited? Or, you know, they're, nah, I don't want to listen to that, so they're less interested in checking out the feed. I think over in Adaptation Nation, I've got an idea for the next episode to say, basically at the end, all right, if you don't want to know what's next, stop listening. Mm. But if you do, I'll give you a little hint. So it can be fun that way. So right, those two like things, that. if you're looking for some more content now, uh, but you got to wait, you got to wait a minute or so for more content because we've got a, a break to do. And if you haven't heard us talk about the English patient, obviously you want to do that. It's a good yes, thing. Yes, you do. It's a good way to spend some time in this wintry moment yes. watching a three-hour movie set mostly in the desert. And <laughs> It's a good time. She, I really enjoyed it. And it was really fun. I mean, if I do say so myself, we had a good time. Yeah, th- those episodes are really fun to do. So uh, I always enjoy doing them. Uh, some follow-up here in the the great head-scratching, literary, barely-trying heist of with the last few years where <laughs> this dude named Filippo Bernardini Basically, he wrote like emails to agents and publicists trying to get, we talked about last time, early looks at manuscripts coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, over 160 that we know of manuscripts were basically fished with the pH uh, from people to ends that are not immediately clear. It feels to me like the answer is going to be very banal or extremely wild. There is, there is no that makes sense answer at this point to what he was doing. It, there, there is no... I don't even know what it makes sense. It's either going to be, I just wanted them uh, for reasons or really something complicated and interesting that we haven't thought about before. I have seen some stuff floating around publishing the publishing internet. I think I saw it Mm -hmm. first on Instagram that, that I don't know if this was like insider information making its way out or just speculation, but the, whatever it was, was a like, Okay, he wasn't using them for the company's ends because the company says it doesn't know anything about this. There's there's no like discernible use of this information anywhere else. Was he just taking these ideas like for his own book that he was writing or trying to get ideas um, for his book that he was writing? Um, it says uh, actually the lead into this Reuters piece says um, he stole unpublished manuscripts of hundreds of authors by impersonating editors and agents hoping to claim the author's literary ideas as his own. And that hoping to claim part is the first that we've heard of any mm-hmm. uh, any intent or any motive um, here. So, okay. And what does that mean, though? Like, right. okay, hope, I can claim anything. Right, I can just walk around. That was that was my right. idea. Was I, it I like were you? Was he happen? going to? What's interesting is that they were manuscripts, like literally hundreds of authors who write all kinds of books. So was he going to like Frankenstein together elements of uh, Margaret Atwood and whoever else um, into a, a proposal for his own book? I, I it you can hear the question marks in my voice. Um, what comes out about this will either be fascinating right. or fascinating because it is so banal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, if this is the moment where a literary fiction novel might pick up with our man, Filippo, because now, and look, he's had to give up his passport. He has a partner who, and that partner has staked their apartment um, as collateral for being out on bail. Hmm. And they're now living in a friend's West Village apartment. Both of them has now given up their passports so that they yeah. can, you know, basically tell the judge, we're, we're not going anywhere, man. Take the passports. We don't have any money. We're going to crash in this flat. I think um, 
who would it be? I think Donna Tartt's novel starts with Filippo waking up today <laughs> in this West Village apartment with an ankle bracelet on, mm-hmm. going, "Now what?" And you flash forward and you flash back and you kind of pick it up from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe maybe that would be something that makes sense. I, again, the hoping to profit from because again. I'm so flummoxed about gaining out the actual order of and operations of what would this, happen. I think also because anybody who's inside publishing and works that closely to it theoretically should know that like by the time any book is in manuscript and set to be published, like there's first of all no guarantee that that book is going to be popular or well received or sell well. But even if it did, like trying to write the next whatever, we have not seen that work yet. I don't know that it's ever worked in like the history of publishing. But, like by the time Gone Girl was popular, people and it had to get popular first, right? Before right. you could even start trying to pitch, here's my thing that's the next Gone Girl. He's steps away from even that because all you know is like this is an idea from a Margaret Atwood book. This is an idea from a some other author book. Atwood is mm-hmm. the only author's name I remember from that previous. Ethan Hawke. Oh, right. Ethan Hawke. Um, so Ethan Hawke was going to put this in his book and I'm going to put it in mine instead or later or like will it call back? Who knows? Like Who knows? I, I, I think that's one of my biggest questions about this personally is how could you work so close to uh-huh. how the way that books get ma- made and still think that this would be effective in in any capacity. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the, it, it, there's two suppositions, both of which are specious at best. One is that you can identify something coattailable at this stage in the right, game, right? right? There's like, this, this is going to sell in sufficient numbers that I'm going to make some sort of copycat or in this vein book that will then successfully ride those coattails. Both of those, t- it's like hitting a bullet with a bullet. That is a really hard yes, thing to or do. Like, even if he just straight up lifted the ideas from Margaret Atwood and Ethan Hawke and somehow got his book out first. Self-published it on... Self-published How do you beat them then, to market? That's another question that's right. then is it like unclear. when they? You know, I was just thinking that when Fifty Shades of Grey came out there were there I can't remember the who it was but someone like followed behind E.L. James and was like she stole my ideas um, at what remember that like at one point that happened and it was and E.L. James was like I have never heard of you before but this person had published similar like functionally Twilight fan fiction. Um, And theirs had been, I believe, published before Fifty Shades of Grey. And they were convinced that E.L. James had stolen their ideas and they were, you know, or at least that's what they were presenting was E.L. James stole my ideas and like she should pay me money because I published this kind of fanfic about um, Twilight before she did and she's the one getting famous on it. So maybe like several ifs down the line and thinking about this it's possible that Bernardini could have done something like I put this thing up on Wattpad two years before Margaret Atwood's book came out and so Margaret Atwood must have stolen my idea even though I really stole it from her but that's like it's many ifs that's a lot of variables you can't control if you're trying to commit a crime that's supposed to benefit you in some way it's this remains confusing is the headline I feel like you would have made more money like working an extra shift at Starbucks a week like it's much more I mean at least you know where the money is coming from as far as we know he's made zero extra money from this so far so yeah that's true it's like (laughs) in terms of like expected average return being a literary patent troll and squatting on these ideas and like mailing them to yourself early so they can and, produce it in court later to say, look, I had the idea first. And like, even though then the agents could say, but wait a minute, this was a manuscript that 
Yes. I, I don't. Yeah, I and do, like simul, even if they you attempted that, like it's not a guarantee that it would work. Simultaneous invention is a thing that's well documented. Yes. Books with similar ideas do come out pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. Books with similar titles come out pretty frequently. Publishers aren't checking with each other to make sure that nobody at the other house has a book with the same title in the works or a similar looking cover or a same kind of theme. That these things happen. Um, so there, there's just no guarantees that. If even the thing we're imagining is what he was trying to do, it would have been successful or anywhere close to successful. And I don't know, speculating about it is both fun and, and maddening, I think. I try not to. We, we've Over the years, we've had the great good fortune of getting some li- little birdies to talk to us from time to time. You know, and these are little birdies, not, you know, ostriches when we come to the <laughs> publishing industry, right? And like we just, mm-hmm. I would like to make this call to whatever birdies are listening and willing. I will take... Because I think the the knowledge gap for us here, I think I'll speak for you here for for a moment, is we don't work close enough on a day-in, day-out basis with the publishing life cycle of a book or rights or whatever. Maybe there's something we don't know. And mm-hmm. even, if you, even if you're a little birdie that does work in the production chain of a title anywhere close to this, and you can think of an angle that we haven't mentioned, please do email us at podcastofbookriot.com. Keep whatever confidential. You can use your fake name, whatever. You can just say, I'm a little birdie and here's an angle because I'm now interested in being interested in in this. And I I floated this to some non-book friends um, to say, is this interesting to you? And like, yeah, except... What's what's the punchline? And I'm like, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, what's the right. punchline? There was a New York Times push notification about this when he was arrested. And there, so there were people in my life who are not book people who were like, mm. do you know about this? And what is this guy doing? And I was like, that is as good a question as any. And I know just as little as you do here. Right. All right. So the call is out. And as as, as half, as a fractionally baked of an idea as you're willing to, to float, we will entertain. And if we get several of them, maybe we'll make it into a segment of like increasing, do- <laughs> increasingly implausible reasons Filippo yes. Bernardini might be doing this. I think we could do like a pool, do a little betting oh, on uh, which one is going to shake out. <laughs> maybe we'll, a little reader poll. That'd be fun. I like if this you, idea. If you submit a specious theory and it turns out to be the thing he was actually up to, we'll send you something. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. 
And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at leebardugothefamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. I think I've got good news and bad news when it comes to stats from 2021 reading culture. Okay. Rebecca, should we start with the good news or the bad news? I think we should think? start with the good news. So the good news is publishers sold a ton of books last yes. year. Unit sales of print books rose 8.9% in 2021 over 2020 at outlets that reported to BookScan. If you've heard us talk before, there's some limitations to BookScan, but it's the best number we have. And I think it is grossly representative, at least mm -hmm. at this scale, of how print books are doing. And here's the other thing. This is a compounding growth. 2020 was up 8.2 over 2019. So the pandemic has been very good, it seems, if we're going to draw a causal relationship between people being at home more and books continuing to sell. I thought we might see some softening in 2021 because we did have, though it turned out to be woefully short, more like the eye of the storm rather than a real balmy time in the summer of 2021 when the coronavirus mm -hmm. stuff was really lessening and then it got bad and it's real bad right now. Does that mean people more listening? I don't know, but it's there. books are selling, Rebecca. That's, yeah. that's the top line here. I I think this makes some sense to me that there wasn't as much softening because we didn't have a two or three month period in 2021 mm. where people were afraid of ordering physical items or touching physical items that were like getting delivered. Like remember early 2020, yeah. there were like, can we accept deliveries? Do we want physical books? There was that big spike in eBooks because people weren't like going to their local bookstore, yeah. going to Barnes and Noble. Some people were not ordering things online because of concerns about COVID being conveyed on packages. So that makes sense to me. We didn't see like a, a big dip coming into it. The particulars of it some of the particulars of it are interesting. Like juvenile nonfiction is the only category to have a sales decline mm. in 2021, which as I thought about that, it was like, oh, right, because kids went back to school. Went like to all school. those, the juvenile nonfiction spike in 2020 was from people being like, oh, my kids are home and I guess I'm going to give them workbooks to do. <laughs> Here's something true to not annoy me about while you read about whatever. Right. Yeah. Ask me questions about this thing that actually exists, I guess. Um, good, good news for the book world. As I mean, 2022 is not off to a gentle start. Um, no. Pandemic wise. So it'll be interesting to see as we go further into this year and hopefully get some more lasting recovery, what happens with books over the long term. Um, as we, you know, I don't think we're going back to what used to be normal, but as we return to a world where people leave their houses more and maybe yeah. spend less of their um, leisure time alone with literary material, more of it out with other people doing things. Yeah, biggest percentage gain in young adult fiction, 30.7. Next biggest is adult fiction mm -hmm. at 25.5. After many years where the fiction categories were laggards over the industry at the I whole. Mean, adult nonfiction is interesting. Big hardcover last year, man. Big fiction Hardcover up 10.3%. 
mm-hmm. um, the the fastest gain save for everything but board books, mass market paperback. I think we've done this nine years in a row. I, however mm-hmm. long we've been doing the podcast, every year MMPs are taking an L in this category. Yep. Down and down and down and down we go. We think uh, the ebook and mm-hmm. mass market paperback are fi- are fighting for the same corner, uh, the yes. wire style, and the ebooks continue to erode the MMPs share of the market. So just to give you some sense of scale. Uh, there were 757.9 million units sold in 2020. So a 8.9% increase brings us up to 825.7 million last year. So an increase of 75 million units, mm-hmm. which sounds like a lot, and, and it is for publishing, and it is on a percentage basis. It's outpacing inflation. We got the December year-over-year numbers for sort of CPI inflation, which is 7%. It's a little different than average inflation, but it gives you a ballpark of where we're. So it looks like it's outpacing inflation because that's one thing we've said before when we look at the, oh, look, books are holding steady. They're up 2%. At least they're growing. And we're like, well, inflation was 3%, so they're actually lagging the market. But this is not dollars. This is units, right? Yeah. So that's important to know as mm-hmm. well. But if you break it out, um, that's not that many books per person, right? If we're just talking about U.S. alone, we're looking at 75 million books divided by what? 380 million people? Mm-hmm. So 0.2 books per person. Additional uh, books per additional, person. Yeah. Additional books per person went up there. And that leads me to the less great news, which is even as people are buying more books, they seem to be reading fewer. Mm-hmm. Um, quite, a, quite a bit fewer, Rebecca. And I cannot get this link to open right now. And my computer's frozen. This is just awesome on my side. Uh, can you help me out with my stats? Uh, do you have it open for the Pew uh, stuff? Yes. Yeah. So the, yeah. this is the Pew Center had their, um, re- their study, annual study about reading habits out uh, this year. And overall, 75% of U.S. adults say that they have read a book in the past 12 mm. months in any format, whether completely or all the way through. That figure has largely, as they know, remained unchanged since 2011 when the Pew Center started doing this research. Print books remain the most popular format for reading. 65% of adults um, saying that they have read um, a print book in the last year. Uh, and then shares of print readers and audiobook listeners remain pretty unchanged from 2019, mm-hmm. but there's been an uptick in ebooks from 25% to 30%. Um, and the headline on the piece was was that. I, did, I didn't see a note in here about people reading less overall, though. Did I miss um, that? Americans read an average year? mean of roughly 14 books during the previous 12 months, and a typical oh, yes, median okay. American read mm-hmm. five books in that period according to surveys. These figures are identical to 2011, which sounds okay, but we had gone up since 2011 right, in the right, intermediate right. years. Mm-hmm. So we're now back to a low point with the number of books. So people are reading, but they're not reading as much in 2021. Even as they're selling or they're buying 16% more books, and that's not compounded. That's I'm just adding the 8.9 plus the 8.2 mm-hmm. of the last two years. So what that suggests to me, if my logic chain is grossly correct here, is people are buying they're they're buying more books that they're not reading. That's the only explanation yeah. I can get here. If the Instagram memes about TBRs and book buying habits are be t- are to be believed, that jives. Um, yeah. There's a... I, now, why I don't might know, that be? What, what, what's that about? Well, I mean, I don't know what that's really about. Mm-hmm. Um, economically, 
folks with disposable income, we've had like a relatively low cost, cheap money situation for the last okay. like com- before like disposable COVID. income. I can't Lots buy an affordable of, yeah. used car, but I can go pick up a hardcover. Yeah, there you sure, go. I can buy some hardcovers. Um, I see a lot of memes float around about like you know, I, I functionally indicating I'm a person who has a TBR pile that's full of books, and yet here I go buying more books anyway. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's to the degree that internet significate significators internet ways that we signal internet signals of our identities yeah. factor into consumerism which they certainly do um that might be a piece of it as well um this is the thing i'm a book person this is the thing i do i buy books i also think there was a huge push in 2020 and 2021 to support independent bookstores um, and i don't know i mean we know what a small percentage of the market independent bookstores make up so i don't know if that bled over into general book buying or just what is going on there over the the last several years but i think there is some real like cultural value attached to what it means to be a person who buys books um, and identifies as like i have more books than i can read but I can't, i'm just going to keep buying them anyway because that book people right book people am mm. i right like there's like a seinfeld bit <laughs> to be done about this maybe um and maybe some of it is baked into early COVID stuff of wanting to support businesses and buying, you know, buying the books and then whether you got around to reading them or not is a different thing. I don't, it maybe is also now I'm just speculating, but what else are we doing here? I wonder if any of it is just connected to the available, how we're used to having the availability of a lot of options for things. Thanks to streaming. Like, Hmm. You can turn on Netflix, you can pick from a jillion things. You don't have to, you know, go to the video store or buy your DVDs and choose from those. And even as a person with galleys, I think I was telling you, maybe it was on the show last week, like I I download a bunch of galleys of things that are coming out in the season. And then I look at what I want to read. And sometimes one of them jumps out to me. And sometimes I'm in the mood for nothing at all Mm. (laughs) on that list. And I do go buy a book or pick something else out. And I wonder if that desire to have access to a ton of options when we're Mm. ready for the next thing is driving some of this also. I'm a book person. I don't just want one book up next. I want to have five that I can choose from. And if you maintain the purchasing pace and the same reading pace, but you're still purchasing out ahead of what you can read, it accum- it would accumulate over time to I have way more books that I'm going to get through. Yeah. I, I Again, while we're baselessly speculating, <laughs> um, my pet theory is there is a exercise bike phenomenon happening, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Basically where there has been an uptick, I think over the last couple of years, especially combination of pandemic and then how much time people are spending on their phones and screens and other kinds where there's a, I wouldn't say let up, but a back to a back to the earth kind of movement when it t- comes to media and books by themselves are a uh, safe haven for people's feelings about consuming stuff. Right, and I, I don't think people say, "Well, I read an e- an ebook is different than than a hardcover," but I think much like I, I want to exercise more. But you know what? The easiest thing for me to do is then go buy a bike. The hard thing is to ride the bike. Yeah, I, the I, easy I... thing is to buy the book. <laughs> the hard thing is to sit down and read it. So, if your aspirations to reading, if if sort of we can say that there's a cultural rising of the tide of the aspiration to read it would make sense to me mm-hmm. that the thing that goes out first is a buying wave right because you know that's yeah. you go in the bookstore i've got the best intentions look at this book that i see a sticker on i've always wanted to read my friend recommended to me boom 20 minutes i'm done it feels good i'm ready to go i get the book home but that's where the rubber meets the road right it's you got to go ride the bike you got to the, the the habit is the thing that's hard mm-hmm. not the buying of the thing so it feels like there's excess desire 
to read that has a mismatch with people actually reading. Yeah, and if that, that continues, sense. that'll be very interesting to see. Um, other notes, I think, here is the audiobook ascendancy continues. Yeah. Um, it's up, looking at the 10-year window in 2011, 11% of respondents said they listened to an audiobook in last year. That is more than doubled to 23%. We thought at one point, really back in 2019, where the gap between an ebook and audiobook had narrowed, where 25% of respondents saying they'd read an ebook and 20 percent had said they'd read an audiobook that we thought we thought when we cite those mm-hmm. um, lines cross where audio become dominant no ebooks still are edging out by a nose i think there's a convenience element to it and there's just more titles available self-publishing genre kindle unlimited i think it's just easier to read an yeah. ebook still audiobooks are still pretty hard to read i also wonder i hadn't thought about this before again this is knowledge we can't get in any way that will be um true but like in our in our great appeals at the Pearly Gates for stats we always wanted. This will be the first thing I do. I say it's not you know tell me the truth of the universe. Like can you give me some stats I could never find out? <laughs> you know I'm assuming that the bought to unread ratio of hardcovers is the oh, highest. Yes. And I'm wondering ebooks to audiobooks. I'm like how many people buy an audiobook? People just don't go on audiobook buying sprees because there's no like it's very unsatisfying to buy an audiobook. <laughs> Right. Right. And if you have Audible, like how Audible or the subscription services get factored into buying audiobooks is, uh, that's an interesting question that I have about, I guess, methodology here. Mm. But yeah, I think that impulse of buy the thing is most satisfied by having the physical item or even an an e-book like impulse purchase that you could open right then and start reading. Um, Mm. It's different. Most people, I don't think, are are impulse purchasing audiobooks. Um, My biggest question, and it's a a big question I have about this piece every year from the Pew Center, is how they pick the stat that they're going to make into the headline. Mm. Because (laughs) the headline here, the piece is by Michelle Favario and Andrew Perrin, is three in 10 Americans now read e-books. And I don't have any qualms or quibbles with that headline. And it's factually accurate, you know, based on the information they're presenting here. But there's so much information here. Like, why is that the thing that is most interesting as the the headline? Or I guess maybe from their perspective, most likely to get people to click on it. Like, people are buying more books than they're reading would have been interesting. People are buying more books. People are reading fewer books. Like, there's so many ways that that could be packaged and uh, probably an answer that we'll never get unless one of the authors decides to email us and tell us what their thinking was. But I wonder that every year, like most of the time, the headline stat that gets passed around at the top of this is like not the most interesting thing about it. I don't think 30% of Americans read eBooks is the most interesting thing about this story. Uh, No, no. Uh, methodology corner. We haven't been to methodology corner in a while. We got we got like there's some dust bunnies around here. I think we put a couple of boxes full of knickknacks. We haven't really mm-hmm. let me clear it out real quick for methodology corner here. A sample of 1,502 adults age 18 or older. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Living in all 50 U.S. states in the District of Columbia, 300 of these respondents were interviewed on a landline telephone, and 1,202 were interviewed on a cell phone, including 845 who had no landline telephone. So 20% of these adults that, they are, that they're um, interviewing mm-hmm. are picking up their rotary dial telephone. They're, they're, <laughs> I, Rebecca, I don't know where we are with, is this, repre- this does, do 20% of Americans have a landline? I 
don't know. And the anecdata is that the only people in my life who have landlines are over the age of 70 and therefore yeah. would not be represent their habits would not be representative of all American adults. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't need to be all. It just needs to be 20%, I guess, right? Yeah. 845 of the cell phone respondents only were cell phone only, which means only slightly more than half of these respondents were cell phone only people. And again, mm-hmm. selection bias, re, you know, availability bias here. Not only do I not know many people that don't have both, I know so many people. And I'm not, I'm not young anymore, Rebecca. Yeah, like I'm, I know. I'm 40, the, th- almost 44 the, years old. I've got to be the middle. I've got, I have to be the median here. I, yes, can, I can't yeah. believe I'm and, not the median. And having it and using it are different. Like, I mean, this yes. is really idiosyncratic, but our cable and internet service are cheaper ah. if we have a landline than not. So there is a landline in my house, but we haven't connected a phone to it it's in like, like plugged a to a toaster or something like that yeah it's yeah just sort of it's there. just like it just you can't call it no one will answer <laughs> you know and so i think the presence of a landline is not so much an indicator of like do 20 percent of people u.s adults regularly answer a landline phone even if they have one it's very it's a it's a very curious Again, I don't know. Maybe this is the best practice. I don't know enough about... Again, like I said, methodology corner. We haven't had guests for a while. COVID. No one's come to sleep in the guest room in methodology (laughs) corner, so we haven't had any practice. Um, But they also do this weird thing where if they get someone on the landline, they ask for the youngest person in the household. And if they get someone on the cell phone, they ask for the oldest person in the household. Huh. That's strange. Uh, I I don't don't know what to say about that one particular either. Again, maybe it represents the highest and best understanding of the way to do these things. We should bring Um, back annotated so we can do an episode about how book reading, how reading habit surveys are conducted. Yeah, because I didn't see anything. And that lead me to, you know, one nice thing about Methodology Corner, even if we're not sort of the 538s of the world when it comes to stuff, though, when it comes to books and reading might be because there's no other game in town. Even like, you only have to be like, (laughs) Five, not even 538. You can be 533 worse than the next most um, compelling statistical analysis you're getting about books. What's the So what ter, What did the average age of respondents turn out to be here? I'm, I'm not seeing this. I didn't see that either. Yeah, because as yeah. we know, if, for example, and this is previews of things to come, if these big upticks mm-hmm. in fiction books buying and young adult fiction book buyings are a TikTok phenomenon. And right. I think there's a case to be made that the tick book talk phenomenon, it's it's centered and I think it you know, I think there's a lot of conversation around books along that role. But in book talk it seems to be young adult and er young adult and new not new adult in like the category sense, but like younger adults actually themselves reading is what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And they've had some big hits and that is up huge. And ain't none of these book talkers have a landline. Ain't none of these book talkers in a household where grandma picks up on the phone for Gallup and says, hey, Sharice, we've got someone on the phone over here. Can you come talk to him about how you bought nine Colleen Hoover books last year? So anyway, I, I'm, I, think, we, I think we have a, a very, very, very reason. In all of surveys, you should do this. Mm-hmm. And is it grossly representative? Maybe. Even if you're, is it missing a huge segment? Probably so. Does that matter? Who knows? But there yeah. we go um, with those particular <laughs> things. Let's talk real quick about, speaking of, um, I guess, uh, subscriptions, right? Uh, this is a fascinating one. I think the biggest new mainstream big five, well, is it going to be big four? That's a topic for another day. Mm-hmm. Simon and Schuster uh, run into a brick wall called the DOJ. Harlequin. 
launching a subscription service, which is not just ebooks. Uh, this is a piece in Publishers Weekly by Sophia Stewart. came out just yesterday. I'm going to read the lead here. Harlequin's mm-hmm. launched Harlequin Plus, a new multimedia subscription service priced at $14.99 a month. Harlequin Plus will offer subscribers monthly book bundles, access to an ebook library, and regularly updated selection of movies and games, all geared toward romance readers. The service will be available for, through both the Harlequin Plus website and app Rebecca Shinsky. This right here mm-hmm. is a subscription book service from a... It's an imprint of a big five, Harlequin being a giant subsidiary of, of HarperCollins. Is this something or nothing? I think I have a qualified answer. Shocking. I think it Maybe, has the best yeah, yeah. the uh, best chance of being something okay. that any of the ones we've seen so far have had because romance readers are the right audience for a kind of thing mm-hmm. like this. Romance readers tend to read like lots of romance fast they read quickly often mm-hmm. um just the vol- the consumption volume is incredible and impressive in the romance corner so 14.99 a month for a whole bunch of books plus movies and games is a really good value proposition you want to go buy a handful of romance harlequin romance books on your Kindle, you're probably paying anywhere from like $3.99 to $12.99 per book for those, just depending on how Har- you know how Amazon feels that day or how Harlequin feels or how they're pricing ebooks. So $14.99 for book bundles plus I don't plus the ebook library and movies and games is that's a pretty good value proposition. We haven't seen the titles that are available and i'll be really interested to see how the romance world covers this as it as it really rolls out and people get experience using the service and reviewing it if the if it's you know the exciting new releases are included in some of these bundles and you can spend your book your romance book dollars on the harlequin plus subscription instead of just one new release that's a really interesting thing for readers to have access to there's a note here that the um, monthly themed book bundles will include titles from across the publisher's nine imprints so that's really interesting and subscribers can receive either ebook bundles or physical copies I don't understand this delivered to their weird home wrinkle. like I guess the only way that 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 I can see that being possible is that ebooks and mass market paperbacks are pretty similar in price point. So, yep. and most romance new releases are mass market paperbacks. They're like so, five, they're like three bucks on Amazon, three ninety nine, yeah. three ninety eight for the, a mass market paperback. The logistics of no. like delivering the print ones to the people who choose print is really interesting. And if you want the print book bundles, are you compelled by access to an ebook library and movies and games? I don't know. Um, I would love to see like the the stats and demographics on their subscribers after two years. <laughs> Who are these people? Yeah. Um, but this is really interesting, and I think it does have a, I think it has a better chance, as I said, of of being a thing than if it were like um, the Double Day subscription or something. Like, not, I love Double Day, but Double Day doesn't have. Ain't no one know who Double Day exactly. They, Harlequin has actual name right. rec- brand name recognition from readers for a variety of reasons that other publishers and especially other imprints don't. And romance readers often do know which imprint they prefer because the different imprints specialize in different kinds of romance books. Um, so that's a thing that romance readers 
benefit from knowing in a way that like a general fiction reader Mm -hmm. doesn't super need to know the difference between like Ballantine and Doubleday and Knopf and somebody else um, unless you get paid to do it like we do so I don't know what do you think well I I think it makes sense for in a lot of ways and I think I don't know that it'll succeed I think in terms of romance these are very hungry readers they read a lot of titles Um, they're also very on the whole tend to be very friendly to digital books because self-publishing has been huge. You can get them quickly. Just your, your own personal reading inventory management is easier. If you're going through that much product, uh, it's easier to get it digitally. And so $14.99 is not competing, say, with your, well, go back to the Pew Research thing, the average American mm-hmm. reading 14 books a month. You're not competing with For a hardcover. A year, yeah. Yeah, or excuse me, a year. You're not competing with a hardcover that costs $29 retail at your local independent bookstore. You're competing with five $4 print books, or really you're looking at maybe eight one ninety nine romance Kindle. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about. And so it's, I don't think it's cannibalized as much. It, it doesn't, it's not the fear factor that the mm-hmm. oysters are scribbed of the worlds if they were really full featured in a way like HBO Max or something else might be. Um, so that makes sense. I'm, I'm curious for the rank and file romance reader. Does this a scratch and itch? Does this help them at all? I- and if you're already savvy at digital, I feel like it doesn't. That's my own sense of it. Right? Yeah, I wonder even about rank and file romance reader as the target customer for this. I think this is best positioned for like the romance power reader, like the top tier. Of... Oh, I, I, mean, I guess I meant the the rank and file power reader. Okay, I, I, I see. I, the, there's right. a there's a there's like a bigger Venn diagram, right? Yeah. Uh, there, okay, we're in the same think. place on that yeah. then. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the other to thing too about this, you know, again, we're going to talk about Station Eleven here in a little bit, and we're not going to talk too much about the streaming wars happening. But what HBO Max, Disney Plus, Netflix, Hulu—they're now in the exclusive content war, right? This is not just this is the place to find things you can find everywhere else, and which is we we thought well the Spotify model, let's put it mm-hmm. that way, which we thought would be the biggest fear of a publisher is that someone I'm not Random House doesn't want to sign a deal with Oyster to make their whole catalog available because then their own product is commoditized. What we didn't realize then is that for the platform they need exclusive content because you need a reason mm-hmm. to stay there, right. right? Rather than get it somewhere else. So I would be much more interested in this if say this also meant that you got some things that only appeared here or first, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, could be, you know, Brendan Novak or who else you want to pick that's in the 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 Debbie Maycombers of the world. I'm not even sure who's under Harlequin's um, umbrella at this point, but say you know, this is the place where you're going to get the series and only here to get people in the door, which is that's what's happening now with these big budget uh, prestige TV. And I think Station Eleven is something else. I think it's art TV. That's an argument you're going to be making in about five minutes. Um, <laughs> Well, that's the kind of thing that keeps my HBO Max subscription going because that's the only place I can get that. And that's not what that is. So in a lot of ways, it feels like fighting the last war um, of like three years ago in the content wars uh, a little bit to me. I think there's a little flavor of we have to try this because we have to try it and say that we tried it. Which is fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's reasonable. That is fine. It's fine. Um, Okay. Well, let's do a break then uh, for sponsors. And then we're going to spend 10 minutes being hype beasts for uh, Station 11. (laughs) Yes. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. 
Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Station 11, uh, the last episode drop today. I can't imagine, Rebecca, that they're going to try to stretch this out. Um, Patrick Somerville, who's the showrunner from this, comes off the Damon Lindelhoff coaching tree uh, Mm -hmm. of Lost, of um, what's your show you like? uh, The Leftovers. The Leftovers. And most recently, um, Watchmen. Yeah. And I think this coaching tree, especially I think having learned the lesson of Lost, of letting the fruit stay too long on the vine, is very much in the let's make something awesome and get the hell out mode. Yes. Yeah. This is limited and it's going to stay limited. And I think that's right. And I think that's right. So if that lowers your barrier to entry, I know I'm like this. If I'm like, you know, and I'm I'm three seasons behind on succession now. This happened to me with Breaking Bad and I'm not sure I'm ever going to get there. But if I knew it was over, that would be easier for me a little bit to do. So that's something to say. This is more like... I think the limited series is a really good adaptation format for an interesting novel. Yes. Let's put it that way. The, the six to 10 episode, I think it's great. It's a new thing under the mainstream culture sun. I was kind of thinking about this of like going back to like the Thornbirds or North and South or Rich Man, Poor Man of like the 70s and 80s, the heyday of the the limited series. Because when we were growing up, Rebecca, the limited series was like something that ran on Hallmark or Lifetime mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was really down market, which is yeah. fine. But it didn't have the place it happens here. Based on the 2011 Emily St. John Mandel novel, which was a hit. And then when the pandemic struck, it had a people are wanting to read about this. um, And it had a moment there. So what what do we want to say? I I don't even know how to start with this. Let me start here. I reread the book um, after I'd watched the first three episodes. And I was like, I don't remember this. Is this the same? And it was driving me nuts. Not that I... (laughs) I'm not really an adaptation purist. That's not what I'm looking for. If you've heard me talk about Adaptation Nation about this stuff, 
I would love both of them to be great. And in fact, I think the most interesting thing, if they're both great and they're both different, and that's yes. tick one for Station Eleven. Mm-hmm. This is an adaptation of Station Eleven that makes choices that are different, but I don't think it's making choices to fix or correct or say the book itself was wrong. They're trying to do different things, which I think is interesting in itself. Rebecca, how are we going to give a 60-second like vibe check of what it's like to spend time in the Station Eleven world? Oh, that's such a good and, and difficult question. We, I think we teased it a little bit talking last week about, like, is it cathartic? Is it healing? Um, I think this would have been... I've thought about this a lot this week. I think this would have been a wonderful experience with a piece of art, no matter when it came out. It is masterful. I think it's the best thing I've watched on TV in the last uh, at least five years. And I am pretty sure that as soon as I watch the finale, I'm going to turn around and rewatch the whole thing mm. so that I can take it in and like pick up on stuff that I missed the first time around. Or this time I've just been mostly like letting it wash over me, but going back and watching it and being able to really take things in and think deeply about them. And that's not something that I feel compelled to do really ever um, with television. It's a beautiful world that asks like the you know the kickoff question is what happens when 99.9% of humanity dies and like what happens to the rest of humanity that's left and i think that the heart of the novel is about art and humanity and what we yes. really need not physical survival but what we need to survive and to want to keep going what gives life meaning um that it's connection and beauty and relationships and like, doing the kind of scary things but take connection and beauty i think are really mm. central here and the show does that in a just masterful way that um this is a show that has love for people. It's not the walking dead of um, the world ended and everything is violent and everyone is violent trying mm-hmm. to protect themselves. This, I think, takes the starting position. If you had to go back to like dorm room philosophy that humans are fundamentally good and want connection and want to support each other and want to create societies and preserve beauty. And it spins out. What does that look like? If you start fresh, what do you keep and what do you get rid of? What can you not keep? So what do you bring in instead? Um, they talk so much to the like post-pan people, the kids who were born after the pandemic about technology. And the kids are like, like, oh, that sounds so amazing that you could do all those things. And everybody's like, I mean, it was okay. <laughs> you know, that's right. And, <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. Like no one's sitting around 20 years after the pandemic talking about how much they miss their phone, which I think is notable. <laughs> in this show but it's it's i've not i've not been so moved by something i've watched on tv maybe ever and i think that's a great word rebecca and i i've been struggling to find one that captures and even being moved is a metaphor right it's Mm -hmm. like i'm just sitting in my chair i ain't moving anywhere but what's happening is my consciousness is being changed Mm -hmm. um one podcast i listened to the watch they were talking about station 11 and uh, andy greenwald said there's one moment in particular where he felt like his soul was levitating. And I think yes. that's an interesting, like moving, levitating, like it, it's changing whatever wavelength. Again, we're looking for metaphors that it's doing something to you that's just different than watching and being entertained and passively consuming something. Because I think what we haven't said already, and I, you were touching on a little bit, is there's a pandemic that happens, it wipes out. One, you know, one out of a thousand people survive is what's said in the show. But it's actually not about the pandemic. It's not about that. We get a little bit of the before, just enough to understand 
spiritually in your soul, like what's going on. But it's not like most post-apocalyptic books with like getting through the day is a thing. It's not a survivalist story. In fact, it's a critique of mere survivalism, explicitly and implicitly. Um, survival is insufficient is kind of the motto of the Traveling Symphony. But we're following these characters that are just, they're not important, right? This is not um, Bill Pullman Independence Day with a right. microphone saying we're going to survive. <laughs> Maybe the government is still it's... out there doing something. These are yeah, we are but a poor lost troop of circus performers, to quote the Princess Bride. They're just mm-hmm. kind of out there doing stuff. And what remains, and the the pandemic itself is, gives a different world. It strips away what we understand about what cultural and civilization looks like and is really talking about what remains. I think it's ultimately a story about loss at varieties of scale, trying to interrogate loss, how you deal with loss. Um, there's good and bad ways, healthy and healthy ways. Mm-hmm. I think fast. It's. I think it's fascinatingly a, a work about adaptation itself, and maybe it's because I've been doing Adaptation Nation. But we have like nine different. We have like rushing nesting dolls of Adaptation Nation because we're mm-hmm. doing. It starts with Lear. You know, Gabriel Sergar Barnal in this moment where it begins is a production of King Lear, right? An adaptation of Lear, and then later the Traveling Seventy is going around doing their own versions of mm-hmm. Hamlet. And there's this central comic book, which is fake, called Station Eleven, <laughs> that there's v- various versions of that story that get well, and, used and perverted and, and all kinds of ways of the, taking stories and doing crap with them is part of what the maybe is the central thing yeah. outside of Lost that the and show then, is about. And then making up stories yeah. on the fly that they perform where the recipient, the people that are there are being performed for it don't know that that's a story being performed for them. They think mm-hmm. that people are telling the truth. But there are stories that happen that get told for the sake of the listener's survival or comfort or yeah. ease in some way. And those you watch those characters know that what they're doing is making this thing up on the fly, but we need this story. It it does so many things. It does them on so many levels. It does them all so well. The use of music is incredible. There are needle drops in this show uh. that I think I'm going to think about for the rest of my life. And yeah. I just I think it captures in some surreal and then some really grounded ways and maybe that's the feeling of it is you feel very high up and also somehow very that's grounded. A great point i think that's a whatever um, that feeling is is a really that important part of what's going on yeah of what it what humans are like in these times and this is i think what resonates the most for me watching this having come out of what 2020 especially was like is it is very dark and it is very hard and very scary and still a kid is putting on a play they wrote in the living room or Mm. someone is rapping uh, at the dinner table and you are having a moment that is born of like spontaneous art and collective joy inside a situation, a global situation, a very intimate situation, both at the same time that look like they should not give birth to any of those things. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable. the the will to art, the will to story, the will to pleasure, the will to joy is stubborn, right? It does mm-hmm. not. It's not easy to extinguish. You would think it would be extinguished here, and that's not what, at least the book. And again, it's not true. I don't know. Like it's not the road. Like the road, in a weird way, has a similar idea where, kind of like never ending story. Like everything is lost except for one grade of sand at the end of never ending story, and that's enough to build the world back on. And the road kind of says a similar thing at the end, not to spoil, but like. We're down to the very last passing of the littlest, tiniest dying of the light. 
but that's enough to keep it going. This really takes that same idea and moves it ahead some of like, okay, mm-hmm. what does that really look like? Because it's not, if you're into like, where are they getting their food from? Or there's no way that gas would still be good in that motorcycle. That's not the point of that. Right. Like right. It's not about where they're getting their, you know, where they're crapping or what are they eating or all this other stuff that's happening. It's like, what's the next, what's the next two rungs on Maslow's hierarchy of needs mm-hmm. when really the top ones about affirmation and cultural status and all that stuff is really stripped away. Um, but the next most basic desire is what this, the show is about, and it continues to be fascinating. We're going to have to leave it there because I'm finding myself to talk about individual characters yeah, and performances, yeah, yeah. and I think without really getting into it, which we should, um, that's enough. But I, you know, I think it's the first prestige television show that feels like art house film to me. Um, the reigning prestige ch- champions, you know, of like the Breaking Bads of the world or the Mad Men's of the world or the Sopranos of the world's those still felt like mainstream cultural entertainments. I've not seen something with this high of a budget. That's a liter it's literary TV, Rebecca. Yeah, that's the only that's the only way I can describe what this is. I think it's notable also that all of those shows that you listed and even the current runs of prestige stuff, succession being foremost, yeah. are anti hero shows. Yeah. Bad bad people who probably aren't going to change, but let's watch them struggle mm-hmm. in their lives in the ways in which they are bad or trying and this is not that by any stretch that you can make yeah, great complication about, doesn't have to be a bummer complication right, can right, be uplifting right right yeah. it's beautiful okay. yeah so stay tuned catch up if you want to shoot us an email again i it's such a specific thing that i can imagine some people are going to hate it um and that's okay uh i think that's maybe a good sign in terms of what it's trying to do or you know the specificity or the the, the point of view it has catch up if you can um, and maybe next week we'll devote, I don't know, we'll, we'll figure out some venue sooner rather than later to really get into Station Eleven and, and break it down um, to that effect. And I'll talk about, I can talk about the book a little bit more if people care mm-hmm. about that. In the meantime, go check out the preview draft, bookwrite.com slash winter preview. There'll be a link in the show notes there. Also, Adaptation Nation. Got some nice feedback over time. There's a new one coming pretty soon. Um, let's just say I've had other occasions outside of Station Ham, outside of uh, Station Eleven, to spend some time with the great Billy Shakes, mm. um, which I'm I've been oh my god Shakespeare Rebecca I, I, know I, don't need, I need to do this but I mean oh my god um, um, unbelievable stuff uh, podcast at bookride.com bookride.com slash listen for the show notes here we'll talk to you soon have a good one. <laughs>